And if you turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9, and that's page 974 in the Church Bibles and 1514 in the Large Print Bibles. Matthew chapter 9 and beginning at verse 35. When we were at uh, the, uh, Words Alive uh, last week, there was lots of uh, different stands of different mission organizations. Uh, and one of them uh, was New Tribes Mission. And uh, Paula uh, went to the Bible College uh, of New Tribes Mission uh, some years ago. And uh, she did a one-year uh, Bible uh, College course. But at New Tribes Mission... Uh, the purpose of the mission is to take the gospel into tribes uh, in all sorts of places around the world. Uh, and if you were to stay on for a second year at New Tribes Mission College, uh, I don't know if they still call it this, but they used to do a year of what they called, or maybe still call, boot camp. Uh, and what they do is they train uh, those who have gone through the year of Bible uh, training uh, on how to survive on the field uh, in tribes. Uh, it's about language learning, but also about all sorts of practical things. It sounds a bit like uh, my Cub Scout camps when I was a child, uh, but probably, or definitely, a lot more intensive uh, than they were. But it sounds like great fun, uh, but it also sounds like something that's very necessary for the work they are doing. They need to be trained in order to go into the tribes to take the gospel. Well, in Matthew's gospel... Uh, we have seen Jesus in chapter 4 begin to call disciples to follow him. Uh, and then in chapter, uh, at the end of chapter 4, those disciples are seeing Jesus minister, proclaiming the gospel, healing, uh, ministering to people. Uh, he teaches them about the kingdom of God in chapters 5 to 7 on the Sermon on the Mount. And then in chapters 8 and 9, so far we've seen uh, Jesus showing that he has authority. And he's shown he has authority to those who he has uh, ministered to, those he has healed, those who have seen his miracles. But above all, those who were his disciples have seen him and have seen his authority uh, in all the things that he has done. They have watched Jesus. They have seen who he is. And now, in this uh, next section of Matthew's Gospel, in uh, the end of chapter 9 and the whole of chapter 10... We see Jesus asking his disciples now to not just watch him, but to help him and to go and share the gospel of the kingdom themselves. What we see in a similar way to what I mentioned about the New Tribes Mission boot camp is we see Jesus's school of mission. That's what chapter, end of chapter 9 uh, and all of chapter 10 is all about. Jesus is tell, teaching his disciples how to be the missionaries that they are going to be in order to take the gospel at the end of Matthew's gospel to the ends of the earth. Here, we're going to see them go on a short-term mission uh, to the area of Galilee as a, as a training exercise to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And all of us who are Christians are disciples of Jesus, and all of us are called to be involved in that great commission to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, and so we need to take note 
of what the master teacher is teaching here to his disciples about how they are to share the good news of the kingdom in the places where they're at. So it's important that this evening we come and we sit and we listen to the master teach us how to share his good news. So let's read uh, what Jesus says. Uh, We're not going to read the whole of chapter 10. We're going to do that, uh, the rest of chapter 10 next time. But we're going to get up to the end of chapter chapter 10, verse 15. But we're going to begin in chapter 9 and verse 35. So let's read that. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and illness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send workers into his harvest field. Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits And to heal every disease and illness. These are the names of the twelve apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter. And his brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew the tax collector. James, son of Alphaeus. And Thaddeus. Simon the zealot. And Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve sent Jesus out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal those who are ill. Raise the dead. Cleanse those who have leprosy. Drive out demons. Freely you have received. Freely give. Do not get any gold or silver or copper to take with you in your belts. No bag for the journey or extra shirt or sandals or a staff. For the worker is worth his keep. Whatever town or village you enter, search there for some worthy person and stay at their house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If it is not, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. Truly I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on that day of judgment than for that town. This is God's word. Well, as we look at the subject here of of mission, uh, we're going to look at four headings which we can draw from what Jesus uh, does and says here. Uh, We're going to look at the the heart of mission, the power of mission, the call of mission, and the how-to of mission, how we do it. So first of all, the heart of mission. In verse 35, uh, we see Jesus continuing with what was, it seems, his normal work. Uh, This verse is a repeat of what we see in chapter 4 and verse 23. He went about teaching in the synagogues, that's teaching the scriptures, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, that is, preaching the kingdom is near because the king has arrived, 
And Jesus backs up what he says in his words by actions that showed that the kingdom has arrived, but also showing that he cared for people. He has compassion. And this compassion for people is at the heart of mission. Look at verse 36. It tells us that Jesus saw the crowds, that is, multitudes of people. Now, Jesus is earthly ministry was limited. He was limited in the fact that he was always only in one place at one time. As a man, he couldn't be everywhere. And he did not heal everybody. But when he looked on the crowds, he had compassion. The the word for compassion is a very strong word. It actually means to have a strong feeling in your bowels, not because of of having a funny tummy, but because that's where the physical aspects of emotion often express themselves. Uh, Some of you uh, will understand what I mean when you're sick to the stomach at something, when you see something or feel something. Well, in this kind of way, Jesus is deeply moved, we might say, uh, or his heart went out to them as he saw the crowds and he saw the great need around him. And the reason for this strong emotion is given there in verse 36. It says, because they were harassed and helpless. To to be harassed means to be uh, beat up or exhausted. Many will know what this feels like, to to have life that is hard, life that's tiring, to feel like you're being beaten up, and it exhausts us for, for various reasons. And then they were helpless. That word helpless uh, there means to, to be laid out on the floor, prostrate, if you've been punched or something like that, and you're, you're just knocked out flat. So he looked at the people, and they were beat up, they were exhausted, and because they were on the floor flat out, there was nothing that they could do for themselves. They were a pitiful sight to behold. And then the description is enhanced. It says they were, because they were like sheep, Without a shepherd. Sheep are animals that are vulnerable. They can't defend themselves and they wander into danger. Uh, When uh, we lived in Devon, we used to drive on Dartmoor and there were always sheep wandering all over the place, often in the middle of the road. Sometimes you'd have traffic going way back because the sheep had wandered into the road. They wander into danger. And they need leading by a shepherd who will take them to safety and refreshment. And these people were like sheep that had no shepherd, and they had wandered into trouble. And because of the trouble they were in, they were harassed and they were helpless. The problem these these people had was that the shepherds that they uh, did have were the religious leaders who had made religion a huge burden with their wrong interpretation of the law and their wrong and overbearing application of it. They they viewed the people that they were supposed to be leading with contempt. They looked down on them, saw them as far below, even hating them. And so the people were like sheep without a shepherd. In fact, the phrase sheep without a shepherd has Old Testament connotations. Ezekiel chapter 34 is a chapter which rebukes bad shepherds of Israel and prophesies how the Lord will be the shepherd. This is what Ezekiel says. 
This is what the Sovereign Lord says. Woe to you, shepherds of Israel, who only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? Well, sheep need shepherds to take care of them. And we live in a world that is harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Either people have no shepherd, because they're not following anybody, or they have an abusive or incompetent shepherd who's leading them astray. There is much suffering in our world. There is much in Pelsall, if we would just look around us. And there is need of a shepherd. Not just any shepherd, but the one who says this, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. This good shepherd is promised in Ezekiel 34. The bad shepherds who are leading Israel, God says he would judge. But after speaking of that, this is what God says. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so will I look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. And here in Matthew, we see Jesus, the good shepherd, looking out and seeing a people harassed and helpless, and he has compassion on them. The heart of mission is the heart of the good shepherd who looks out at a harassed and helpless people and wants to help them. There is no mission if there is no motivation that is from a heart of compassion for the lost who are on their way to an eternity in hell. Of course, we must also see the physical and material needs of people and help where we can. But the underlying problem of these people was their lack of a shepherd. And we have the answer, Jesus. Hell is real. And as we heard this morning, an unimaginable salvation is available. How can we not act? Compassion, we'll see, moves to mission. But it's so easy, isn't it, to ignore the needs around us. And there's a variety of reasons why I think we ignore the need. On one hand, there can be an overexposure that perhaps deadens us to the reality. We see so much need on our television screens or reports from mission organizations or things through the post that tell us about all the things we need to do, all the, thing, all the missions we need to pray for. And those are important that we, we understand that need. But sometimes an overexposure can cause us to just ignore the needs that are around us and think, well, how can I possibly do anything? There's so much. On the other hand, we can also sometimes be so busy with our own lives that we just forget that there is a need. Or perhaps the truth of how people are harassed and helpless can be so painful to look at that we want to think of happier things. And so we shut the need away. But Jesus shows us here that we need to stop and look around us. And I think a good principle here, looking at what Jesus did, is to begin by just looking at the place where we are. Look at your street. 
Look at your workplace. Look at your school. There will be enough people there who don't believe and who are harassed and helpless and like sheep without a shepherd for you to be moved with compassion if you think about their eternal destiny. And then, of course, we need to pray about other situations that you find and ask God to show you what you should support and how you can support it. But just begin by having compassion on those around us, as we see Jesus doing here. But when we see the need, what should we do? The temptation can actually be to do two extremes. One, we can say we can do nothing because it can all seem a little bit too overwhelming, so we retreat back into our comfort zones. Or on the other extreme, we can try to do everything and help everybody and then burn ourselves out in the process and be of no use to anybody. And we can become disillusioned even with the work of the gospel. If even Jesus needs to call 12 disciples here to help him, how much more do we need help on that mission field to help others? But Jesus shows us a better next step than do nothing or do everything. In verses 37 to 38, he shows us the power of mission. There's a metaphor change in verse 37 where Jesus moves from a field of sheep to a field of wheat that is ready to be harvested. It needs bringing in and there seems to be loads of it. And the problem is that there is not enough workers on the field to bring the wheat into the harvest. Well, Jesus is looking out into this harvest field of souls that need to be brought into the kingdom, and he says that the laborers are few. You could include John the Baptist as a worker, but other than that, so far it seems that Jesus has been on his own, doing the work of proclaiming the kingdom. But throughout the history of the church... There is always more work than there are laborers. There are always more souls to be reached with the gospel. But Jesus gives us a solution to the problem in verse 38. Look at what it says. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send workers out into his harvest field. The answer is to ask. Ask the Lord of the harvest. Jesus' solution is not to get up and start running around doing everything. It's actually to get on your knees and to pray. The phrase Lord of the harvest means that God is the one who is the owner of the field and he is responsible, therefore, to employ the people to bring in the crop that he has grown. It's his harvest and as the Lord of it, he has the resources to supply to bring it in. When I was uh, working uh, as a manager of a department, if I had too much work, I could go and ask for more staff to come and help me because I was responsible for that department and I had a budget to bring in staff to help when I needed. Well, God is the Lord of the harvest field and he doesn't have a limited budget. He is God. He has unlimited resources. And so we ask God to bring the workers to help bring in the harvest. We are to pray for the Lord of the harvest to bring in workers. Well, what is it we are to ask? We're asking for people. The Lord of the harvest, with the unlimited resources, chooses to use people to bring in his harvest. 
And God does that by giving both the desire or the compassion to reach the lost and the ability to speak and act in ways that reveal the gospel to those who need to hear. So we are to pray because we cannot bring the harvest of souls ourselves. Only God can save, and so it's to him we pray. It is interesting, isn't it, that the first response that Jesus asks us to give is to pray. When we see a great need, our instant response, isn't it, first of all, is to go in and do something. More programs, more strategies, and so on. And these things are important, as we'll see. But the real power behind mission is the prayers of God's people. And so the question that we must ask ourselves here is this. Are we praying for God to send workers into the mission field? In our own private prayer life, do we pray for the lost, not just in our families, but plead with God on behalf of our neighbours, our work colleagues, our local area, our nation, and the various needs around the world, all of which is God's harvest field. Are we praying individually? But there's also a responsibility to pray corporately for mission too, for the mission in our own area, for our own nation, and the missions we support around the world. Numbers at prayer meetings are getting lower And although in our church here at Pelstall we are seeing uh, people converted and we see baptisms, God has had great mercy on us, just imagine what could happen if as a whole church we really rose up and prayed to the Lord of the harvest. Why don't you put a prayer meeting in your diary uh, on a Thursday night every two weeks and come along and pray with us for the mission field here in Pelstall and around the world. Next Sunday in the evening, we have a prayer service. Come along. We're going to hear from a mission that we support as a church, and we can pray uh, for them to the Lord of the harvest. Well, the main purpose of prayer is to ask God. It's to depend on him. But a byproduct of praying for the lost is that it actually gives us more compassion that we need for those who we are praying for. As we are praying, we are thinking of the needs rather than ignoring them. But prayer is also a very dangerous thing. When Jesus says that we should pray for the Lord to send workers into the harvest field, he is not saying that we should pray for other people to do the work, but rather that God would send more workers, assuming, therefore, that we are actually working for him. This prayer seems to be of one who is working, saying, I can't do all of this, we need more help. Not someone who is sitting down doing nothing, saying, God, will you please send someone over there? As we pray for God to send the workers, we begin to realise the call of mission. Right after Jesus tells his disciples to pray for workers, they find that they are the answer. This is not saying that every time we pray for somewhere, we'll end up having to go. Although I have to say on Thursday, when I was seeing the really exciting work in Mali, I was very tempted to say, come on, let's go. But God's harvest field is the whole world. And it does mean that as we pray for workers, we will end up realising the need to get involved. 
Notice in verse 1 of chapter 10 that Jesus called his 12 disciples to him. This is the first time the 12 are mentioned as a group. And it's a specific group that have been called or set apart for a purpose. And that purpose is given in the same verse. They were given authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. Basically, they were given authority from Jesus to do what Jesus did. To represent him on the mission field. To continue the work that he was doing. And it's important to note that they were given authority. Now Jesus in chapters 8 to 9 has been showing his authority. Which is authority from God. Which he passes on to those who are to represent him in mission. So the call of mission is to go out in the authority of Jesus. In God's authority. To do what Jesus asks us to do and to be like him. Now we'll see in a moment specifically how he instructed his disciples to do this. But the point here is to say that we have been called, set apart for the purposes of God, which is to make Jesus known. Now you may be thinking, surely not me. You may feel totally inadequate for the work of mission. Well, that's true. We all are. We need, all of us, God's authority and power given to us. But take comfort from the list of names here in verses 2 to 4. These 12 were apostles, which means sent ones. And although all of us are sent, these 12 appear to have a unique ministry in the early church of establishing it. But if you look at these 12 names... We see that Jesus did not appoint spiritual superheroes that we could never be like, but just ordinary people. We don't know much about most of these men. We know the mistakes of many of them. Christianity is definitely not founded by a group of people who like to show off their good points. But one lesson in these names is the fact that God can use any of us in his harvest field, if we would be willing to be his workers. And the fact that all Christians are called to be disciples, and all are called to be ambassadors for Christ, urging people to come to know him, it's important that we all recognize that all of us are included in the work of sharing the gospel. Not all of us are called to full-time gospel work. Not all are called to go abroad into some far-flung place. But we are all called as a group, not of 12, but as a church, to work together like the 12 did in different ways, using our gifts for the glory of God. There are lots of mission opportunities to get involved in in the life of the church. Why not come and ask one of the elders and we can happily direct you to various places where you can serve. But on a much more practical level than that, why not think of one person who you can pray for and talk to about Jesus even this week. Maybe someone at work, someone at school, maybe a member of your family or a neighbour. Who can you talk to and make Jesus known to proclaiming the kingdom? Well, you may be thinking at this point that that's all well and good, but how do I do it? What exactly is it that God wants me to do? 
Well, this passage doesn't say whether the disciples are thinking this or not. But nevertheless, Jesus goes on to give us the how-to of mission. The twelve are going to be sent on a short-term mission around the Galilee area. And Jesus gives them instructions to do this. Up to verse 15, which is where we're seeing tonight, the instructions uh, seem to be specific to the actual mission that the disciples are on, rather than exactly what we need to do uh, every day in our own lives. But the principles behind the instructions can be drawn out and applied to all of us. Hopefully you'll see uh, what I mean when I say that these aren't necessarily things we have to do uh, right now. So, for example, that very first instruction that we find in verses 5 and 6, it says there, do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. But if we take that as we must do that now, we are Gentiles if we are not Jews. Of course, we're not supposed to not share the gospel with anyone except Jews. But there's points behind all of these things. And the first point that Jesus makes in verses 5 and 6 is that we have to have a clear focus. A clear focus. He tells his disciples not to go to the Gentiles or Samaritan towns. The literal translation is, do not go on the road of the Gentiles. The roads to the north of Galilee went into Gentile territory. The roads that went to the south went to Samaritan territory. Jesus did not want them to leave Galilee, but to stay among the people of Israel, the sheep who are lost there. Well, why did he want them to do that? Well, in part, there is a theological reason. Jesus was the Messiah who had come from the Jewish nation to be their promised Messiah. They would be the first ones that Jesus would go to. They were his people, through whom the promises of the Old Testament had been made. But there's a practical reason behind this too. This was training for mission. They had to learn how to minister among their own people before they could be sent to others. And a focused mission can be more effective. An example of this is is that we aren't doing door-to-door work over in Japan asking them to come to our morning services. Why? Because they're not going to come, are they? We have a, a mission to ask people to come to the church here in Pelsall. Or rather, we ask the people in Pelsall to come to Christ. Mission organizations, or should at least, well, always, or should at least always, have a specific focus or a specific purpose. You can't have a mission organization whose goal is to reach everybody in the world. And as individuals, we need to have a focus on what we are doing and to do it well. We can't do too much and be effective in all of it. And for some, that may mean scaling things back. And for our church, we need to make wise decisions on how we're going to reach our community without spreading ourselves too thinly so that we can do things with excellence. So we need to have a clear focus. A second instruction is found in verse 7. Proclaim the message. Notice in verse 7, Jesus tells them what to say. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Now for us, we proclaim that Christ has been crucified. He has risen, he's ascended, and he is returning. 
We tell people that Jesus has died for sins. He has risen from the dead. He is coming to judge. We keep the message clear. We keep the message simple. It's easy to get the message mixed up in all sorts of other things. But we must keep it focused on the gospel. Focused that Jesus has died for our sins and is risen from the dead. Now, other things are good to be involved in. But as we think about mission, we mustn't get our message muddled up. We must have uh, opportunities to, to share the message. And often this comes through our actions, which is the third instruction Jesus seems to give. Words being backed up by action. Look at verse 8. He says in verse 8 that they need to heal those who are ill, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Those actions that Jesus talks of there are the things that he did that sh- in chapters 8 and 9 that showed he had authority. Jesus said, do what I did. Love people, have compassion on people. And our words must have the integrity of love behind them. And they must also have the integrity of being not-for-profit. Freely you've received, freely give. The gospel is not for sale. It's a free gift from God, and so it must be given freely. Now, this applies both to our money, but also to our time as well. We must freely give of our resources for the cause of Christ in the knowledge that he freely gave his all for us. Although the gospel must be given freely, the workers in the field need to be provided for. But their provision, Jesus goes on to teach us, is not to be from money solicited from those who need to hear the message. But the provision of the work is supported by the Lord of the harvest. Look at verses 9 and 10. Do not get any gold or silver or copper to take with you in your belts. No bag for the journey or extra shirt or sandals or a staff, for the worker is worth his keep. What we see here is Jesus saying to the disciples, trust in the Lord to provide. Do not get means do not procure. Do not rely on your own finances to sustain the work. The work of the gospel is going to be provided for by God. That bag mentioned there is probably for carrying food and spare, the spare shirts and sandals and stuff were extra provisions. Jesus is saying that the workers must not rely upon themselves to support their mission, but to trust in God. Now there's a sense that this is for this specific mission, isn't there? Because in Luke chapter 22 and verse 36, we haven't got time to go there, but if you note that verse down, Jesus actually uh, says the opposite of this as how to live after he's risen from the dead. So we can't just go on the mission field and not think about how we're going to be supported once we're there. We can't, uh, you can't uh, go home tonight and just quit your job and say, that's it, I'm done, I'm going to trust the Lord to provide, without thinking. The point here is that all that we have is from God, and we need to trust him. The workman is worthy of his hire. That means that God will provide for his workmen, those in his harvest field, those who he has hired. You don't employ somebody and then not pay them. And God, neither, is going to call us to work for him and not provide for our needs. 
Now usually the provision uh, for the gospel work comes from the people of God, the church. Which is why our church supports its own pastors and supports the work of the gospel in financing ministry in this nation and further afield. God uses his church to provide for his people. Well, the final instruction that Jesus gives is in verses 11 to 15, where we see the need to discern who is receptive. Discern who is receptive. First of all, read, uh, let's look at verses 11 and 12. Whatever town or village you enter, search there for some worthy person and stay at their house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. But also a worthy person. Do you have to go around and find someone who you, who you think is, um, you know, looks nice or has a home which is, uh, you know, clean and tidy or whatever? No, a, a worthy person is not to do with moral or social status. It rather speaks of someone who is receptive of the message that the disciples will bring. A supporter of the gospel, if you like. Uh, one who, in the words of verse 14, welcomes and listens to your words. When they arrive at the home of one who is like this, then they will be able to stay at the home. That means receive hospitality for a time and to remain there until they can share the gospel message somewhere else. And it's time to leave. If they go into a house, they are to give it a greeting. Luke tells us that the greeting was, peace be to you. But if the person was unreceptive or unwelcoming and didn't listen to the gospel, which is where we get the term undeserving in verse 13, then Jesus says, don't hang around there. Don't waste your time sharing the gospel with people who just refuse to listen to it. Rather, let your peace return to you. The declaration of peace was given to the receptive, but it's taken back if the household is unwelcoming. The disciples were declaring the peace of the gospel, but if it's not welcomed, that peace of the gospel is not going to be received by them. It's taken back. And having returned it to you, the unreceptive will know the consequences of their actions. And the disciples were not to waste time on this mission with people who were not willing to receive. Look at verse 14. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. When a Jew returned from a foreign land, once they got over the border, they would symbolically remove the pollution of a foreign land by shaking the dust of that land off their feet, showing that they were not soiled by the stains of the lands that were ungodly. And Jesus is saying to do this is a symbolic way of saying that the people who are unwelcoming are ungodly and they're liable to God's judgment. And that judgment's described there in verse 15. Truly I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on that day of judgment than for that town. Sodom and Gomorrah were towns destroyed in Genesis chapter 19 for their wickedness. Those names were proverbial both for wickedness and for ones deserving of judgment. But they did not have, in Sodom and Gomorrah, Jesus Christ. They didn't have all the works that he did. They didn't have the scriptures that declare what he has done. And if they deserve judgment without having all that we have, 
how much more those who see Jesus and still refuse to accept his word. I think there are two points here to think about. Firstly, in the purpose of mission, don't waste time arguing with people who have no interest. If someone is really against the message, move on. The harvest is plentiful. There are others to try and bring into the kingdom. This doesn't mean permanently give up on someone you are witnessing to. An example is in our families. Uh, I, I have a family that don't want to listen to the gospel. I mustn't give up. But when I recognize a conversation just is not going well, and they don't want to hear, I have no obligation to continue that conversation and keep pleading with them and going on at them. I need to say no when it's time to stop. It calls for a discernment in conversations we have to end them if they are unwelcoming to the message. But the other point to think about here is that point of judgment. Jesus is presented to us in his word. We have no excuse for rejecting the good news of the gospel. Don't be unwelcoming to the message. Investigate it and receive it. And I wonder uh, where you are This evening, if any of you are in a position where you are not welcoming this good news of Jesus Christ. If that is you, if you are here tonight and you are unwelcoming of the message, you haven't received it. Think upon verse 15 and the judgment that is to come. And receive the good news that Jesus has died for your sins and has risen from the dead. Now, I know that there was a lot uh, in the passage tonight, and I hope that it's not uh, too overwhelming uh, for us to think about. But as we close, I want us just to have a time of quiet just to reflect on what's been said. But as we bring it home, I want us to consider perhaps just one or two people that you can speak to. And let's quietly now pray for them. That God would bring the gospel to them, whether it be somebody else, but also being willing to be the one who brings the message to them ourselves. Let's pray that we would have a heart for these people. Let's pray that God would send people to share the gospel with them. Let us be ones who recognize we are called to share it with them. And let us follow Jesus' instructions on how we are to share that gospel message. So if we forget everything else, let's spend just a moment in quiet prayer thinking of one or two people that we can tell about Jesus. So let's do that now, and then I'll pray. And then we'll close with singing.
Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for the compassion that Jesus shows here uh, to those who are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Help us, Heavenly Father, to see the needs that are around us. There are many in our own neighbourhoods who are like those that you looked upon with compassion. Deliver us, Lord, from apathy. Help us, Lord, to recognise the need of the gospel to be sent out. And may we be willing to be your workers and to follow your instructions. And we pray to you, the Lord of the harvest, to send workers out into the harvest field. We pray for this field of Pelsall. We pray that we would see people saved. We thank you for the baptisms we have seen over the uh, last uh, number of years. We thank you for baptisms to come. But we pray for more. Because there are so many who are in such great need. We also think of the missions we support, Lord. We think of uh, the uh, Bible translators, Lord, and the the 1.5 billion people without your word. Heavenly Father, send workers into that field, we pray, that your word would come and they could hear your gospel. We think of the pastors being trained in Uganda. We pray that those men would be sent out to speak the good news to the people there. We think of the church in Albania and the Albanian evangelical mission that we support. We pray that workers would be raised up from Albania to meet the great need in that land. Lord of the harvest, we pray that you would send workers. And Lord, if those workers are us, would you please show us where to go and how to serve. In Jesus' name, amen.